Well, a question for you. Have you ever had an experience that, for you, it was just beyond your expectation? You had, you had no preparation for the, for the marvel that you beheld or, or the, the sensations that you felt. Maybe, maybe it was some piece of music and you went to some concert or whatever and it was, it just blew you away or, or maybe some majestic sight. You went up to a mountain for the first time or you saw something you'd never seen and just overwhelmed you. Whatever it was, it just kind of, it just blew your mind. You, you went into kind of territory that you, you didn't even know that it existed. Well, that's about, hap- about to happen to a group of church leaders who they thought that they had, you know, really they've experienced all the marvels that they could have. But they've been, they were about to be taken into a way of thinking that it just, just never occurred to them. I mean, it was as if, you know, you had the crucifixion of Christ, and then his resurrection. Then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All of these things they had not anticipated. And now they're about to encounter a new way of thinking. It even took them far beyond what they've already been experiencing. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Acts uh, chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18 at this new phenomenon for them that's going to blow their minds. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now, if you're using the church Bibles and your visitor, just let you know, I, I, I preach actually from a different version, the English Standard Version, but you'll be able to follow along. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And this is a, a kind of a curious thing, but let me just kind of do a little bit of background out of what has happened here. Now, the, these apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea, Again, we have to remember the early church is made up only of Jews. It's been stretched a little bit now to include Samaritans, but that's of recent origin. But now word has gotten out that Peter had gone out and he had visited Cornelius, this Gentile centurion. Now, let's note what it is that they've heard. We're told that they had heard that the Gentiles have received the word of God. People, as far as they're thinking about this, who've had no claim at all to belonging to God's covenant nation, they've not only heard the gospel, and that's what the word of God is referring to here in the book of Acts, they've received it. They've responded to it. they They've appropriated and they're claiming that these promises are belonging to them. What belonged, as far as the Jewish believers had had clearly understood, that what belonged to the children of Abraham alone, these Gentiles are receiving it as though it belongs to them as well. And all of this is happening 
because of Peter. So Peter knows that he must give an account. So when he returns to the mother church in Jerusalem, he's prepared. But note here what the criticism that is that's brought against him. Peter, you ate with Gentiles? You think about this. I mean, souls are being saved. And what the church leaders care about is who Peter had dinner with. Okay. So what's, what's happening here? What's behind that comment? Well, it all has to do with an understanding of the nature of the gospel. Back in Acts chapter 1, you might remember the apostles are asking Jesus before he's ascended. He's saying, all right, now when are you going to do what? When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They are Jews. They believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And they expected, now that he's risen from the dead, that he's going to do what they understood the scriptures to be teaching, to establish Israel as the great kingdom on earth, and those other nations, the Gentiles, they would pay tribute. So the gospel events, the way they looked at this, Jesus' death, his resurrection, ascension, these were the events that proved him to be Israel's Messiah. And so Peter, when it comes time to Pentecost, how does he conclude his sermon there at Pentecost? He says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, this Jesus Christ, Lord and Christ. So to the first Christians, it was for the house of Israel alone for whom Jesus came. He has ascended, he's going to return again, but to do what? Well, in another message, Peter says this, the time for restoring all the things about what God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That restoration that Peter's thinking about is the restoration of Israel as God's kingdom on earth. And therefore, what does he call the people of Israel to do? Repent of their sins. Confess Jesus as Lord in preparation for this restoration to come. And so far from, from mingling with Gentiles, these Jewish believers, these Jewish Christian believers, should all the more be observing the laws that restrict contact with whatever or whoever might be unclean. Now, could Jesus be for Gentiles? Theoretically, hypothetically, yes. If those Gentiles first converted to Judaism, there were steps, there were rights that Gentiles could take. Jesus, you know, could be, you know, well, they could take these steps, they could become declared Jews, and then Jesus could then be for them. But they had to themselves first take that step, basically of getting themselves right. And then something bizarre happens. Peter goes into the home of a Gentile. Now, he's ready to explain. we pick that back up in verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in a city of Joppa praying, 
And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. He's talking about Pentecost. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's saying, guys, this was not my idea. Okay? I didn't initiate this. I didn't plan this. It was the Holy Spirit's. See, Peter understands the concerns of his fellow Jewish disciples. He would have had the exact same objections if the Holy Spirit had not acted. And so Peter only entered the house of the Gentile Cornelius out of direction by the Holy Spirit. But more significantly... While he's preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on on all who heard the word. They received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the same baptism that had fallen upon the apostles at Pentecost. And so he says, I mean, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? I mean, what else could Peter have done? And so verse 18 concludes this way. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Try to, try to picture this. You know, before, I mean, they're all in kind of an uproar. They're troubled. They're concerned. They, they bring this Concern to, to Peter. Peter explains what had happened, and then the room just goes silent. I mean, each person, they're just trying to take in what Peter has relayed. And the idea is so fantastic. It is so beyond ex- expectation. You, you can picture them thinking this the Gentiles. Gentiles. God has also granted salvation, they also may receive the covenant promises made to Israel. That's just blowing their minds. Gentiles. They're just thinking, Gentiles. Now, once they get it into their hands, 
finally sinks in, note what they do. They glorify God. They praise God. I mean, they could have responded with shock. No, not Gentiles. Instead, it was praise God. He even includes Gentiles. And so now the gospel moves into territory far beyond the original expectations of the apostles and the first church leaders. Now, the primary message of this passage is is quite clear and simple. The gospel is for everyone, wherever, whoever they are. There are no limits to whom the gospel can go to. There are no limits to whom the gospel can transform There are no limits, for that matter, of how the gospel will be communicated. The only limits lie in our minds, in our expectations. Now, the first, again, Christian believers, they had limits to whom the gospel may be given. Initially, that limit was to full-blooded Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham. That got stretched. To include Samaritans, half-blooded Jews, who, who also claimed Abraham as their physical father. That was a difficult stretch, but they could get their minds around the concept. I mean, they and the Samaritans had a common heritage. They both did look to Abraham as their father, but Gentiles. I mean, such a concept, it just never entered, came, never came near to their radar. Now, they could have defended themselves. They could have said, look, um, given what the scripture seemed to have taught and was the accepted interpretation by all Jewish authorities, I mean, how could we have known that the gospel was also for Gentiles? I mean, that's what Peter protested about it in his vision. Of course not God. He, He would have said, look, I'm merely being faithful to scripture according to to my tradition. And yes, for that matter, and yet, when you think about it, who made the same claim? Same claim was made by the Jewish religious leaders for rejecting Jesus. He, after all, did not fit the accepted understanding of Scripture that was taught about the Messiah at that time. And so what really is at issue for these leaders is now coming to surface. These Christian leaders were no different, really, from the Jewish religious leaders. The problem was not theology. The problem was not intellectual. The problem lay in their hearts. They had not been restrained. There's no sign that they were being restrained by Scripture from taking the gospel to Gentiles. There's no hint up to this time of their praying for Gentiles, of, of somehow wishing that Gentiles could also be saved. They just didn't care. I mean, there's that one scene that we have of Philip presenting the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, that clearly was an anomaly. I mean, either he did not report it to the, uh, to the church leaders and other believers, or, again, nobody showed any interest in doing the same thing. There was no interest in spreading the gospel for these first believers. There was no interest in spreading the gospel 
to anyone else but their own people. And so what's the lesson for us? Well, in that mind, we need to do what? We need to examine ourselves. Now, we don't have the same theological restrictions. We know that the gospel is for everyone. We know that whoever responds to the gospel will be saved. We know that. And yet, we have to ask the question, are we limited in our imagination? Are we limited maybe even in our desire as to who will be saved? Let me give a couple of examples. Five years ago, Bahir Mohammed was fighting on the front lines in Syria as a member of an Al-Qaeda offshoot, dedicated, dedicated to establishing an extremist Islamic state. A cousin had introduced him earlier in his life to extremist Islam, and once he became indoctrinated, he saw any kind of compromise uh, as blasphemy, and he approved all means of brutality against uh, his perceived enemies. But something changed during those months in which he was fighting. Somehow he became disenchanted. He saw how their own methods of brutality were no different from those of the, the government in Syria that they were fighting. And so eventually he and his wife escaped the war in Syria and they became exiles in Turkey. Now he didn't give up his religion, but then something else happened. That cousin who had introduced Bahir to Islamic extremism, had immigrated to Canada. And there, he had become a Christian. And they had kept in touch, and one time when Bahir's wife became ill, he called his cousin. And his cousin at that moment was in the midst of having a home Bible study. He put it on speaker, the whole group prayed for Bahir's wife, and she eventually became healed. Now, that caused him, well, to become open to the gospel. And his cousin found someone who was a missionary in Turkey, and Bahir quickly became converted. And he is now a leader in a Christian Bible fellowship still in Turkey. Who would have expected that an Al-Qaeda fighter to become a Christian leader? Well, let me give another example. And this is of an American academic. Now, 20 years ago, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield was, by her own words, a radical university professor. She studied the worldviews of Freud, Marx, and Darwin. Her primary field was critical theory, as she notes, and not just another name for postmodernism. Her specialty was a postmodern studying form of gay and lesbian studies. Indeed, she was the faculty advisor at that university for the Gay Lesbian Student Association. As to religion, Rosaria and her lesbian partner were members of a Unitarian Universal Church. Now, she became alarmed by the religious right. And... Part, she began research on a book that would address what she called the hermeneutics of hatred. And she wrote a critique in the local paper on the promise keepers that were in town at that time. 
And that produced a large volume of mail. Two distinct camps. There were those who were fan mail, and there was hate mail. There was one single letter that defied either category, and it was written by a Reformed Presbyterian minister. And Rosaria described it as a kind and inquiring letter. He asked her questions that she just never had thought about before. Invited her to uh, his and his wife's home. And eventually she took up that offer because she wanted to do research. That led to weekly dinners. Eventually, after more than two years, that radical professor came to profess faith in Christ. Even became a pastor's wife in the same denomination. Who would have expected this radical professor to become somehow a highly sought-after now, a highly sought-after Christian speaker. Now, these two individuals, I admit, they're exceptions to the rule. But here's the point. Aren't we all? Being dead and brought to life is the exception to the rule for anyone. And yet that is what takes place for everyone who is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Now, whether one is a a radical, whether one is an atheist, whether one has grown up in an evangelical church, we are all in the same state if the Holy Spirit is not working in us. Indeed, I, I would say this, that probably the most difficult person to convert is the one who believes he's already saved because I'm good, I'm moral, I'm religious, I go to church. What do I need to to repent of? And repentance is the key factor. Now, we regard faith as the key element, and that's true, that one must exercise faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. But think about it. We're to have faith in Jesus to do what? To save us from our sins. To save us from the just wrath of God because of our sins. And until we believe this, until we believe that we are sinners justly deserving the wrath of God, well, we're not going to turn to Jesus in faith for salvation. Now, we might regard Jesus as the Son of God. He's worthy of worship. But we're going to look to ourselves for salvation. Maybe Jesus, what he did on the cross, certainly helped us. But we've got to look to our own goodness, our own morality to save us. Well, what must come is this conviction. And it must lead us to repentance. But the only way that that is going to come is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Whatever one's testimony may be, however much one may point to to understanding, even to to accepting uh, the Christian faith, it is conviction of sin. It is the resulting repentance that leads to saving faith. And that explains, by the way, that very odd expression of the church leaders after they heard Peter's story. 
They don't say what we would have said. They, would have, they didn't say, well, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted salvation. That's what we would have said. No, they say this. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. That leads to life. That leads to salvation. You know, Ephesians 2.8 says that faith is a gift of God. But we're to understand so is repentance. Indeed, I, I think repentance is even a clearer gift because it's the more difficult of the two to exercise. Faith, have faith. Well, everybody thinks that's a good thing to have faith. To repent because I'm a sinner? Well, I'm not that bad. You know, I can give you reasons to believe. I can give you reasons why you ought to feel guilty. But what I cannot do, I cannot make you feel conviction. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have yet to feel such conviction, there is something you can do. You can pray for it. And I assure you this, if you do pray for it, it will come. It may come suddenly and powerfully, like like the housewife who told me that one time that she, you know, her, her father had been praying for her and she just could not bring herself to believe. And, and one day she is vacuuming the house. Suddenly she senses the holiness of God in her sin and she gets on her knees and repents and turns to God. Or the house painter spoke of the same thing, of how, you know, he, he'd, he'd, he was believing the gospel, he's believing all this, but still nothing was really happening. One day, he's on the balcony of a house, he's painting, and it just hits him. His unworthiness, his sin, and what Christ has done for him. Or maybe that won't be your testimony. It may, it may just seep into your conscience gradually. Softly, as it does especially for many who were raised in a Christian home. But the point is this, however way it comes, you will feel a paradox of sorrow and of peace. You'll feel the sorrow for your sinfulness. You'll feel the peace from the mercy that is experienced in Jesus. And then everyone know this, know this. What our passage is teaching us is that there is no person, we can never say that there is anyone beyond God's salvation. If he has determined that they will be saved, it's not just a mere matter of, yes, the odds are good, we can expect that. If he has determined that they will be saved, they cannot escape that salvation. They cannot escape Receiving that repentance that leads to eternal life, whoever they are, wherever they may be. You know, we place limits for different reasons. There are some people we just don't care for, and so we just don't pray for them. We're really not interested in their salvation. There are some people who just seem, well, they're out of reach. Maybe because of where they live, maybe because of their lifestyles or whatever, but... No, we can't reasonably expect so-and-so to ever change. And then there are some people who we love so much. We have prayed for them so often. 
that we have come to no longer have any real expectation that our prayers will be answered. Well, again, our passage teaches no one, no one may be written off. No one may be, may be beyond expectation. Let's pray. Thank you, our God, that you have taken us who were, whoever we were, for however we may look at ourselves, truly were beyond human expectation. We ourselves were dead. We ourselves were stubborn. And you, you changed us. You can think of people whom we never expected, whom you have changed and brought to you. And we all the more then. Pray that you would stir within us expectations. People whom we do not know, people who are our enemies, people whom we know but just don't think they could. We pray especially for those whom we love dearly. Pray for them now. That you would bring them into your kingdom. They too may know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand with me and let's sing the first two verses of hymn 252, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. of the Lord's Supper as it comes to us from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. This supper that we are partake of, this, this sacrament, is God's sign, his seal to us. He, we were never beyond his expectation. Okay. Whoever we were at any time, wherever we may have been, whether it was terrible sin that may have kept us from him, maybe it was self-righteousness, he broke through that, brought us to repentance. And he has forgiven us. It's done. We do not again and again and again have to repent. That has been done for us. We have been made his children. And do we sin? Do we continue to fail? We do. Ought we to to ask forgiveness? Are we to, to repent in a sense of our sin and in turn to him? Yes. God speaks to us just as we tell our own children. Your sins did not cause me to disown you. You're not having to win your way back in. You're mine. You belong to me. Jesus Christ, our good brother, has shed that blood once and for all. Neither Christ, our brother, our high priest, neither God the Father, has forgotten us. And that's what they want us to remember. To remember that we are never, never forgotten. And if you do not know our Lord Jesus Christ, know that it is our desire that someday that you will join with us in partaking of these elements. We ask that you not do that now. This is for those who have come to Christ, who have repented of their sins and exercised faith. But know this. Again, it is our desire and that it is for anyone, anyone who repents, calls upon the Lord. There is no one, there's no one sitting here, there's no one anywhere who is beyond expectation, beyond God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you. There is never a time that that when you, you, you looked at us, and you moaned. You, you thought that we could not be saved. No, when you looked upon us, you said, that is mine. That is, that's my daughter. That's my son. And you planned it. You worked it all according to your plan. And we thank you for that, for that knowledge. Now, as we partake of these elements, partake of the bread, partake of the cup, all speaking to us what Christ has done for us upon that cross. All the more then, turn our eyes and our thoughts upon our Lord Jesus, the one who is not ashamed to be called our brother. In his name, amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you.
body of Christ given for you. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup. After having given things, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all ye of it.
blood of Christ shed for you. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for his incarnation by which he took upon himself our very flesh, and in that flesh made atonement for our sins upon the cross. We thank you that though he died and was buried, yet he rose again. And in his resurrection, we look to our own to come. We thank you that he has ascended on high at your right hand. And there he serves as our high priest ever interceding for us. We praise you. Just as he came before, he will come again. But this time in all of his glory is our great Lord and King and consummate his kingdom. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's continue our worship.